Mark 1, 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is the mightiest than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, Mark chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, we normally preach through books of the Bible here, and this morning we're actually beginning a new sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. I'm thrilled about this series. I'm thrilled to be going through the Gospel of Mark. Like We, we just actually spent a, a handful of weeks pressing into different scriptures, sort of unpacking some of our foundational beliefs and distinctives as a church. Uh, but now with this new series, we're going to dig into sort of like our ultimate foundation. Going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark to get an up-close and personal look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I think it was John Stott who once said, there's, there's not a single more important belief to settle in your heart and mind than what you believe about who Jesus is. And look, it's, it's not only skeptics that get Jesus wrong. Like Christians can get him wrong too. It's not just skeptics, Christians can get him wrong. Like if we're not careful, and if our view of who Jesus is is not shaped by the Scriptures, then what happens is we tend to box him up, sort of compartmentalize him, and we minimize him to be nothing more than kind of like the God who gets behind my cause, you know? Or the God who gets behind my politics, or the God who gets behind my worldview or my way of life. But Mark, the Gospel of Mark is all about giving us the raw Jesus. He gives us Jesus sort of like unfiltered and unadulterated. The Jesus who is truer and better than the Jesus that we make in our own images. And the great irony behind that is that a Jesus that, that you shape a Jesus that fits in with your own desires could never really be your Lord in any true sense of that word. Because He's just you, right? Like He can't change you. He can't transform you. He can't challenge you because you've made Him in your own image. Several months ago, we started reading uh, like chapter books to, to our daughters, three years old. 
So we started reading chapter books to her, and I'm talking like legit chapter books, like books with actual paper pages, you know? Not like these thick cardboard pages. Uh, and so we're talking books like with no Velcro, right? Uh, and actually like blocks, like chapters of text that tell, to tell a, a robust story. And the first time that my wife sat down with our little girl Geneva and broke out Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, you know, classic tale by C.S. Lewis, uh, our daughter started looking for the pictures, right? She's turning the pages, she's looking at the, for the pictures, she didn't find any, and she just kind of stared at the book and said, no, I don't want that book. That's not a kid book, is what she said. Uh, but then, we dove into the story. And she started to hear the story of the Pevensey children and a land called Narnia and this mighty lion named Aslan. This rich story of good and evil and redemption. And what happened is her little mind was open to this whole new world and this whole new way of looking at stories. And when that story ended, she wanted to hear it again. And she wanted another chapter book. She's going through Charlie and the Chocolate Factory now, right? And you see, she, she had this, this small view of what a good story should be. But now she's got this new standard. She knows what to look for. Now she begs for these, these chapter books. You see, some of us are coming into a series like this with too small a view of the Jesus story. Too small a view of who Jesus is and what his story is. And Mark shows, shows up to sort of settle the issue for us. To give us a clear picture of the true and better Jesus, the real Jesus. He writes to answer questions like, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? Why does he matter? And if you want a Jesus who really matters, who can like renew you and who can fix what's broken in you and what's broken in the world, then you have to get to know the real Jesus. And that's the thrust of the Gospel of Mark. That's the thrust of this series. And so let, let, let's dive in. Read verse 1 with me. Verse 1 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark just kind of dives in, and he tells us who Jesus is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He doesn't even like waste time in this Gospel with the Christmas story about little baby Jesus, right? Like when Mark puts pen to the page, he starts with adult Jesus. Because remember, he wants to acquaint you with who Jesus is, why he matters, his character, and his actions. And so right away, he tells us who Jesus is. Read it again with me. He says, the beginning of the gospel, which is, means good news, of, of who? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, some of us tend to think of Christ as like Jesus' last name, right? But originally, Jesus was his name, and Christ was his title. Christ, the Greek Christos, literally means anointed king. And so that's the first point I want to unpack from our text this morning, that Jesus is the truer and better king. Jesus is the truer and better king. You see, he's the prophesied king that we read about in the Old Testament. One way that you can kind of make sense of how the Bible fits together is you look at the Old Testament as all these promises that have been made, 
And the New Testament is a story about all these promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God. Mark wastes no time and just tells us right here in verse 1 who Jesus is. He says He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He doesn't even you know, waste time with the, with the background. He just tells us who Jesus is, and He gets into what Jesus has done. And the great irony here that you'll see again and again throughout this book is that Mark tells us right off the bat who Jesus is, but the entire book... The entire Gospel of Mark is actually filled with people who just don't get it. The social setting throughout Mark is one of both unawareness and unbelief. From the disciples that followed Jesus around, to the crowds that gathered around Him, to the religious leaders that hated Him, none of the people understood who Jesus was. They either outright opposed Him, Or they just missed the whole point of who he was. That is until the cross at the end. And so Mark really focuses on this throughout his gospel, throughout his book, about how Jesus constantly defies our expectations of who he is and should be. What that means for us is that this book, the gospel of Mark, this book can handle your skepticism about Jesus. It can handle your unbelief. Because it's actually the context, the backdrop, that gives that dramatic punch at the end. All the characters throughout the story, they don't get who Jesus is until the very end. Kind of like the great twist at the end of a great movie. You guys remember when you got to the end of The Sixth Sense? Right? At the end of the movie, you find find out like, oh my gosh, Bruce Willis' character is dead the whole time. And I'm sorry, if I, if I like, that's a spoiler to you. If you haven't seen it, it's like, it's 2018. If you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, that's on you. That's not my fault. But once you know that fact, right? Once you know that fact, you can never unsee it again, right? You go back, you're like, oh, I got to, how can that be? You go, go back, you watch the movie again, and you start to see all these things you never saw before. And so Mark does us a favor, and he tells us in verse 1, the point of the whole book, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God. No one else in the story gets that point until the very end. But Mark wants to make sure that we can see that like all throughout the book coming up, that Jesus is truly the truer and better king. I mean, let's be real. It, can, it might be hard for some of us to wrap our minds around this idea of Jesus as king because here in the West, it's like we vote for our leaders, right? The very thought of a monarchy, it's like, yeah, didn't we get here because we rebelled against that? Didn't we win that war? But the Scriptures are repeatedly clear that Jesus is our king. And that we're citizens of His kingdom. That's why we pray as Christians, Lord, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is a better king than any and every other king because His kingdom is where His truth, His goodness, and His beauty reigns. Look, we're all ruled by something. Every one of us is ruled by something. For some of us, it's our work. It's our labor. For some of us, it's our relationships, right? Our marriages, our family. For some of us, it's our reputation that we have before others. All these rulers, all these kings will let you down. 
but not King Jesus. He is a truer and better king. Read verse 1 again with me. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. You see, in this verse, we see that King Jesus, the Christ, is also the Son of God. Now, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 42, just for a quick moment with me. Um, if you don't, we'll have it up on the screen. But Isaiah 42 tells this old, it's this Old Testament prophecy that shows us why the Messiah, why Christ, why Jesus is going to be a truer and better king. And here's what Isaiah 42 says, beginning in verse 1. This is the voice of the Lord speaking, and it says, Behold, my servant, this is speaking of Jesus, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, what this passage tells us is that God the Father delights in his son, King Jesus. Why? Isaiah 42 says, because of what kind of king he is. He's the kind of king who serves. He's the kind of king who's patient. He serves and suffers. The kind of king who uses his power to serve those under him. He's a truer and better king, a gracious and loving king. We could say he's a king who went to a cross. That leads us into our second point, which is that Jesus is also the truer and better way. He's the truer and better way. Let's read the next couple of verses together in Mark chapter 1. In verse 2 it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So here's a prediction recorded by Old Testament prophets that before God would break into the fabric of redemptive history, before Jesus would show up on the scene, a herald would come to prepare the way and for, for Jesus. John the baptizer would prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, he'd be a herald, and he sort of would be the, this grisly-looking dude, right? Really unassuming for a prophet of God. But so much, so much of Jewish belief about who this Christ would be, who this king would be, depended on who this guy was, who John the baptizer was. Check out what verse 6 says about him, about John. Verse 6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And so here you've got this guy. He's kind of a strange dude, right? Um, he's living out in the wilderness eating a diet like straight out of the Lion King, right? And you've got this picture of sort of this mountain man that, that probably doesn't come off as a super stable guy, right? I mean, you raise the kids on, on, on bugs and sweets, right? Like, and he, he's out there yelling at people, yet we, 
we, we, we, like all the people would go to this empty spot in the wilderness. He would go to this empty spot in the wilderness, preach the Scriptures, and crowds would gather because he was the prophesied forerunner. Crowds would gather around him and get baptized. Read what verse 5 says. It says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, to John, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So if I went to a crowded place, like the Irvine Spectrum, and I started preaching, no one would come out to hear what I have to say, right? No one will come out to hear me preach. But this guy goes to the middle of nowhere in the wilderness, and he's got crowds following him around because he was the chosen forerunner of Christ. Now here, context is everything. Context of the scene is everything here. I want you to notice where this whole thing is going down. Look back now at verse 4 with me. It says, John appeared baptizing in where? The wilderness. Now, when you and I think wilderness, like what comes to mind? When you think wilderness, what comes to mind? You're thinking probably like Amazon jungles, right? Maybe frolicking in the forest, hiking in Yosemite. You're probably picturing somewhere that you can like hunt and fish, a place that's just flourishing with wildlife. But the Greek word here that's translated as wilderness uh, literally means a desolate place, a barren land. And so it's a place that can't sustain life because there's, there's thorns all over the place and so nothing grows where the wells are dry and so you always thirst. There's no animals to catch. There's no grain to grow and so no bread to eat. It's a lonely and desolate and barren place that cannot support life. It's less like Yosemite and it's more like Joshua Tree. right? That's the picture we get of the wilderness. So what's the significance here? You see, John... The one who's baptizing, he's not preaching in the wilderness for some random, like, arbitrary reason. It's actually extremely significant that he went out to the wilderness to preach because the wilderness, we see all throughout the Old Testament, is where people met God. The wilderness is where God's people met him. The wilderness was a place of new beginnings. You see, for the Jews that were reading the Gospel of Mark, the Jews reading this narrative, the wilderness is where they were exiled. It's where they received the law. It's where everything goes to die in their memory. It's where everything goes to die unless God intervenes. And for God's people, they have memory of that. They have record of that, that he did intervene when they were on the point of death again and again and again. In Joshua, it's where God's people, they cross the Jordan River. In Hosea, it's where God wooed them back to himself. The wilderness is where God's people find out again and again and again and again that the things that they place their hope in, the things that made them feel valued and secure, their sort of functional saviors, would all end up turning out to be completely insufficient in the end. C.S. Lewis writes this in his apologetic work, Mere Christianity, when he says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know 
that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it, give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or the first think of some foreign country or the first take of some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. In other words, if you meet the real Jesus, if you meet and encounter the real Jesus, then you're going to realize that no other foundation compares to him. No other way compares to him. He's the truer and better and firmer foundation. He's the truer and better way. No amount of career success, no amount of friendly camaraderie, no amount of beauty, amount of money, no matter how wonderful your family is, no matter how great your spouse is, none of these things at the end of your days will truly satisfy you in the deepest parts of your soul. In the wilderness, we learn that there is a thirst that only God can satisfy. You see, the reason that you and I will get thirsty for water so quickly is because our bodies are made up of mostly water. And so when you're dehydrated, it's because the water levels in your body have gotten so low, too low for comfort, and you start to feel thirsty. You see, and it's, it's with that in mind that John the baptizer calls the people to a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance because they were turning elsewhere to satisfy the thirst of their souls. Read uh, verse 4 and 5 with me in our text. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I want to dig into that phrase, baptism of repentance, right? And what that is, is it's, a, it's sort of a change of both mind and of action. Now, that word repentance, not a popular word this day and age right? That word repentance, it sounds harsh, right? Kind of gives you this image of like the fire and brimstone. And man, I feel you, right? Like I, I, I get why that word makes us feel that way, but it's in the Bible, right? It's in the Bible. And so when we hear something from the scriptures that sort of rub us the wrong way, our job is not to pretend that it's not there or to try and change the word to say something else. Our job is to press in and to ask questions, and what we find is that the Hebrew definition of repentance is simply a wholehearted return to God. That's what repentance is. It's a wholehearted return to God. And so John the baptizer is baptizing all these people and he's calling them to a wholehearted return to God. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, <coughs> then that is something that's happened in your heart. That's something that you know about, this wholehearted return to God. The things that you used to hate about God, you now begin to love and enjoy and delight in. The things that you used to love about sin, you now begin to hate. 
You begin to see the truth and the goodness and beauty of God for the first time, and you start to delight in it. You start to yearn for it, to hunger and thirst for it. And here's the thing I want you to get, is that repentance is a gift. It's a gift that we as Christians can delight in. Repentance is a gift. It's one of the, like one of the most astounding verses in Scripture is 1 John 1.9, which says, If we confess our sins, then He, God, is faithful to, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's wild. If we confess our sins, if we repent, then God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. All the bad things that we've done, all the good things that we failed to do, and he's, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You see, repentance does not equal weakness. Rather, it shows to everyone, it shows to ourselves and to everyone around us how much, how much we love Jesus more than our sin. How much we love Him more than anything else this world has to offer. <clears throat> you see, repenting will never harm us. In repentance, we're actually freed to be exactly who God is making us to be. In Galatians 5, we're, we're called new creations. That means we're not defined anymore or condemned <coughs> excuse me, by what we have done or by what's been done to us. <coughs> there's, a, there's a young man in this church. Um, I don't know if you guys know Palmer. Uh, he's a friend of mine. We met like a few years ago. And um, when I first met Palmer, in a, uh, we met at a coffee shop, right? Like a little over a couple years ago. And... Um, I'd see him in there all the time, and so I went up to him, and I was like, dude, I see you here all the time. Like, what, what's your name? What do you do? Uh, we just kind of struck up this friendship, and he soon found out uh, that I'm a pastor, and I'm a Christian, and um, he started, like, every time he'd see me at the coffee shop with my Bible, like, he'd, he'd, he'd make fun of me for having my Bible in front of it. Whether it was closed, he'd make fun of me for not reading it. Sometimes it was open, he'd make fun of me for reading it, right? Um, and then a few months ago, um, he started coming to our church like semi-regularly, and then earlier this year, uh, like in January, he started coming weekly, uh, and he came to Saving Faith in Jesus Christ. And um, yeah, praise God for that, right? Um, and and it was, the coolest thing happened this week is that uh, Palmer texted me a, a couple days ago, and he's like, hey, um, what, what chapter are we in in the Bible this week? And so I sent it to him. He's like, all right, cool. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it ahead of time. I want to read it. That way I can, I can study it. That way I can pray about it. That way I can be prepared for, for church on Sunday. And I just kind of sat back on that. I'm just like, man, I praise God for the work that God has done in this brother's life. Right? That's incredible. The things that he used to hate, the things that he used to make fun of, like he's doing himself. You see, repentance does not equal weakness. It's freedom. It's joy. It's us being a new creation. And I want you to notice, we're told that everyone in the area came out to be baptized. Everyone in the area came out to be baptized. And so what's wild about this is that the Jews normally didn't get baptized because they saw themselves as clean. 
Because for them, baptism was a picture of getting your sins washed away. And so it was something that they only did for, for people outside of the nation who were coming into the faith. Because back then, like your faith was tied to your nationality. And so John's ministry, when he starts baptizing people and everyone's coming out from Jerusalem and from Judea to get baptized from him, like John's ministry launched an entire new way of looking at it. It was a complete paradigm shift. You see, when John was baptizing, he said, I have to baptize all of you. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, if you're a Greek, everybody needs to get baptized. It doesn't matter. Everybody gets that invitation. It doesn't matter if you're a high priest or if you're like this public heathen. Everyone needs to repent, to be baptized for your sins. He says, Jesus, who is better than, and he said, Jesus, who is better than me, will baptize you again one day. He says, I do it with water, but he'll do it with the Spirit. In other words, the big point that John's getting at is that you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. Both the self-righteous religious person who's banking on all their religious activity and also the prodigal son who's ran away from God both need to repent. Both need to wholeheartedly return to Him because both have missed the point. Both need their lives changed by the power of the gospel. You see, we are all, it doesn't matter where you are on the faith spectrum, it doesn't matter if you're checking this Jesus thing out for the first time or you grew up in the church, all of us are spiritual beggars. And God has provided the feast. We bring nothing to his table other than our need. Our hunger that only he can satisfy. You see, the call to the wilderness is a call to recognize your need for grace. To die to yourself and to walk in newness of life. That leads us to our third point. We see the king and his cross. The king and his cross. Read verse 9 through 12 with me, which says, In those days Jesus, King Jesus, came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him, drove Jesus out into the wilderness. We'll stop right there. There's a fascinating thing happening in these last few verses. Jesus, he's getting baptized just like everyone else. Jesus, in solidarity, is getting baptized just like everyone else. Jesus, the Christ, the King, the redeeming King, the Savior King, the Son of God, identifies with His creatures by stepping into the river Himself. Man, that should be mind-blowing. The reason that's so fascinating is because, again, people normally got baptized to have their sins symbolically washed away. It was a way for them to return wholeheartedly to God. Jesus didn't need to return to God. He was the Son of God. Mark tells us that right off the bat. 
Jesus did not commit any sin. He did not need to repent. The crowds came to wash their sins away. And here, Jesus came to begin his work of dying for their sins. The events of this chapter, the events of this chapter point forward to Jesus' work on the cross. You see, in Mark chapter 1, the Spirit descended upon Jesus, empowering him for his ministry. In Mark 15, at the end of the story, we see that uh, the Spirit of Jesus would leave his, his lips. In Mark chapter 1, we see that the heavens tore open as God's voice came down. In Mark chapter 15, we would see that the curtain of the law would be torn, making a way for us to come back to God. In Mark chapter 1, Mark says that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior King. And in Mark 15, when Jesus is on the cross, one, everyone would abandon him, but this one man, this one soldier um, who put him up there on the cross would finally confess what Mark started off with and say, surely this is the Son of God. You see, earthly kings, they go up to thrones. Jesus leaves his throne to come to a cross. The throne is a place of power, while a cross is the total opposite. It's a place of complete helplessness. And that is the good news in the Gospel of Mark. That is what makes Jesus the truer and better king. That is what makes him the truer and better way. He's the kind of king who goes to the cross. He's the kind of king who steps into our world. He's God with us, who takes our sin and gives us his righteousness in return. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live, a sinless life with no need of repentance. Yet he died a death that you and I deserve to die. So that when he rose from the dead, that you and I, who have faith in him and are united with him in faith, can share in the benefits of that resurrection so that we, you and I, could get God. That is the victory of the king. That is the good news of Mark's gospel. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.